Welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Angel Deer is a medicine man and offers his work on sacred land through shamanic healing, energy healing, sound healing, breath work, plant medicine, and workshops and events. The Sanctuary is a community for all those who seek healing transformation, ancient wisdom, and a place to come together to create a new way of living and relating. This is the Sanctuary Podcast, and this is Angel Deer. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we converse by telephone with Shawinigan Ungaya, a.k.a. Guillaume Agathereau, founder and director of the Sanctuary Healing Center in the Catskill Mountains, where he offers various forms of healing modalities, including shamanic energy and sound healing, plus plant and herb therapies, as well as an awakened leadership course. We'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called The Lute in Dance and Dream, Masterpieces for Lute from the 16th to the 18th centuries, performed by Lutz Kirchhoff on Renaissance and Baroque lutes. This piece is a fantasia by Francesco Canova di Milano. This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. Great to be here. This week on the show, we converse by telephone with Shawinigan Ungaya, a.k.a. Guillaume Gathereau, shamanic healer and founder of the Sanctuary Healing Center in the Catskill Mountains of New York. After a career that scaled the heights of corporate success as a CEO of global companies, Guillaume reached a turning point in his life. Material success and trappings had not necessarily made him really happy or fulfilled. He had the big degree, big job, and success that most people aspire for, but he was not happy. Guillaume decided to completely change his life and embarked on a journey of self-exploration and meditation that took him from working with Mother Teresa's mission in India to the jungles of Peru in search of finding meaning in life and fulfillment beyond the material demands of society today. Through seeking to transform his own life to live with a higher purpose, Guillaume made a life-changing commitment to helping others in their search for peace, harmony, and happiness. During his last 10 years of transformative journeys across Asia and South America, Guillaume had rare opportunities to study and meditate with master healers and teachers of all faiths. He is trained in shamanism, plant medicine, medical Reiki, Sufi healing, sound healing, meditation, and herbalism. In 2015, Guillaume opened the Sanctuary Healing Center on his property in the Catskills, where he does in-depth work with clients, hosts workshops, and cultivates the land for organic vegetable farming, plant medicine, and honeybees. Born and educated in France, Guillaume also holds a Ph.D. in veterinary science and surgery from Bissonne of Fort, France. Guillaume resides at the sanctuary in the Catskills and travels to New York City and all over the world for his work. 
Shawinigan Ungaya, Guillaume Gathero, welcome to the Mystical Positivist. Thank you. <laughs> well, great to have you on, and uh, we will begin by with uh, the question we always give to or ask of guests uh, in our first conversation with them, and that is to invite you to cast your memory back to uh, childhood and youth, and um, tell us about any experiences that uh, pop into your head that you would be able to say were were harbingers or precursors or uh, pointed to the direction that your work has taken, in your case, in the last uh, 10, 10 or more years. Yeah, it's it's always uh, always interesting to to look back. I was you know thinking about it, and uh, I think the the main thing you know that keeps coming up is that connection to nature. For me, that was always very strong when I was little. Hmm. Uh, my parents always found me. You know, they say uh, always my eyes either on the ground or up in the sky. So I was <laughs> never really looking straight in front of me. So I was always looking at insects or marks of animals on you know in the forest or looking at the stars and what's beyond and the mystery of it where where and, in france uh, uh, where in france were you able to look at the stars as opposed to i was uh, living two hours north of paris ah. so in a small in a small town and my parents yeah well, we would live on the edge of the town basically on the forest on the edge of it so oh, I well, see. we always you know spend a lot of time there wonderful well so um uh you obviously, at least from the biography that Stuart just read, um, you clearly, um, after that initial interest in nature, you uh, you got involved in the material world and uh, the business world. Um, um, how did how did that just briefly? How did that happen? And and then how did you uh, decide to exit that? Well, I went to a veterinary school when I get my, my degree, my PhD, and um, in fact, right uh, at the end of the studies, which was, you know, around seven seven years, um, I decided somehow I felt like I didn't want to be uh, opening a, a clinic. Mm -hmm. um, I specialize in working with farm animals as a surgeon at the time. Mm -hmm. And I realized, oh, I think I want to live in different place in my life. And if I open a clinic, I'm going to live in one place. And also, I felt there was something else calling me. And uh, I started my first company when I was at school as a student. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, 20 or 30 people working in it uh, by the end of my study. Wow. And uh, the CEO of a pet food company came to see me. I think it was a week before the end of, of my uh, my whole uh, study. And he said, hey, Guillaume, why don't you come and join us? Why don't you come work for us? Hmm. Uh, I think that would be great. And I didn't really think too much about it. And I just went to work in the corporate sector literally a week after I left uh, the school. Hmm. And all my friends were, you know, going to work at other clinics and opening clinics. And me, I went, you know, on that, on that work uh, directly into the corporate sector. So I kind of made the shift, you know, pretty, pretty quickly without too much questioning, I would think. But you were still using your uh, your veterinary uh, knowledge, I assume. Yeah, in some ways, because you know I was basically in charge of uh, a big sectors for that company in um, the north of France, and I was my clients were vets, so I, I would be dealing with them for you know commercial matters and marketing matters. I would visit uh, veterinary clinics, 
three or four days a week. So I would still be in that environment, definitely. But it was more commercial and marketing jobs that, you know, I mean, it was about nutrition too, because I was, you know, working with quite high end pet food, but it was not directly related to most of the things I learned at school, for sure. Mm. So, so how did, um, how did you find that experience and, and what was the growing pressure that, uh, arose within you to find something that, uh, ultimately was more meaningful for you? Well, I didn't question it at the time. I really loved it, to be honest, you mm-hmm. know, because my friend that was out of school were struggling and they had to do an overnight shift and weekend works and, you know, they were working for other clinics, not getting very well paid. And, you know, I was having a salary, I was having a car and the company was taking care of me. And so for many years, uh, I stayed in the corporate sectors because I became quite good at what I was doing. You know, I went to for different companies. I worked for Nestle and then I went to work in the luxury industry. And it's really after 10 years uh, working in the luxury industry uh, that I started to realize that I was not really happy. I was I was really good at what I was doing. I was successful. I was making money. But my life was not fulfilling somehow. There was mm-hmm. something else calling me. And I could not really put a finger on what was wrong because I did everything I was told to do. You know, the big school and getting a nice job. and yeah, and making money and buying a house and just doing all those things. But I had all of that. And somehow it was, for me, it was like, no, that's not it. I don't know what it is, but this is not going to fulfill me. So that's when the questioning started. Um, And then I opened my own business, you know, so I went on an entrepreneur path where also here in the U.S., in New York, where I was living at the time, and uh, became also the same thing. You know, my company became really big with, you know, close to 200 employees and, uh, within a few years. And that's when the pressure, I think, the distortion between the outer world, my successful outer world, and my, what I call premier depression or the unhappiness of my inner world was so apart from each other. It was like this massive stretch. There was such a difference between who I was playing during the day and what I was feeling inside. Mm-hmm. And that's really when I decided to really quit everything and go on a, on a big different journey. Got it. Um, before we get into that d- different journey, I, I just want to um, ask if when you were growing up in, uh, north of Paris, did did you have any kind of interaction with relig- any religious or spiritual um, traditions at all in, in your growing up? I mean, you mentioned the your fascination with and connection with nature as a child. But um, yes. But go ahead. But my 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 family was atheist, so I was not raised. I mean, you know, France is a you know Christian country. Most people are Christians over there. But my parents were not, and you know, I never went to church or things like that. Mm-hmm. But I was always attracted to religion, very young age. Um, mm-hmm. My mother remember that I was maybe six or seven years old. And you know, in France, we have all those beautiful old monasteries and yes. abbey and churches. My parents would love for us to go visit those old places. Mm-hmm. And I always felt very connected there. She told me one day that we were in that uh, monastery, that, you know, that was not in activity anymore, but I would walk uh, inside around where the monks were walking. I didn't know that, but I was doing that round circles all around mm-hmm. a certain spot in the garden. And the person that was making the visit told us, oh, that is doing like the monk used to do. And mm-hmm. I think I was five at the time. 
Uh, I don't remember it, but I clearly remember that connection that was really strong my whole childhood and, you know, never left me. You know, it has just been growing my whole life. Got it. Um, so then, um, returning to the point in the story I, I diverted you from for a moment when you'd, you'd reach this disconnect between the aspiration that you had and, uh, uh-huh. that I assume was, was not yet narrowed down, but, um, yeah, not at all. <laughs> but, but what you, but what you were, what you were, um, actually doing, you know, successfully in the world. So how, how did you, how did you negotiate not knowing what direction mm. to turn to to fulfill your aspirations? Well, in short, I would say it was really an act of faith. You know, that's really what it was when I look back now. Uh, but uh, there was clearly not a comfortable place to be for me at the time because I was definitely not comfortable with not knowing. You know, having a scientific background and, uh, you know, being raised, you know, yeah, a certain way where you need to know everything and figure it out things before you take decisions. And, and, uh, that, that was creating my whole suffering because obviously I could not see what was next. Uh, but in parallel to that, at the same time, my suffering was growing. And mm. at some point it becomes so intense. And I was on the spiritual path, meaning that you know, I had teachers, I'd, I was starting to learn meditations, and I was going to retreat. So that was going on in the background and mm-hmm. increasing that suffering in some way, but also increasing my capacity to hold more space mm. for that suffering and for uh, a way to look at it, to see what is going on there. What kind of traditions and, were you uh, uh, exploring at that time? Say that again, sorry. Uh, well, what kind of traditions were you exploring at that time? Uh, I was working with a teacher in New York, which was uh, an Advaita Vedanta teacher, so Indian scriptures, mm-hmm. uh, traditional Indian scriptures, uh, and with uh, someone that was in the lineage of uh, Chogyam Trungpa, ah, okay. so crazy wisdom. Mm-hmm. So very two very different lineages, but in some ways, you know, I really loved it. I love the the difference between the two of it. <laughs> yeah, got it. So, um, so you were doing that though. I mean, we're still in the period, um, or, or you were still, you were beginning to do that towards the end of the period of your uh, engagement with the business world in the way that you described, right? Yes. And I started to uh, walk with plant medicine. I started oh. to go uh, walk with shamans um, in Peru. And it was, you know, I would say probably four or five years before I left everything. Mm-hmm. So I already had to start to a feeling and experience uh, of what what this world is about. Hmm. And that's what basically grew in the background the most. And that's what really became what what I'm the most connected to today, but still very connected to all the different religions also. So so I'm interested about that uh, transition in, you know, uh, working in, I I presume you were in New York City when you're doing, uh, at this point, doing your Mm -hmm. corporate work. and being exposed to uh plant medicine is an interesting difference i mean uh from the uh, uh trumpa tradition or the the shambhala tradition and the um and the advaita vedanta i'm interested yeah. how, how did you how did you get connected with that and 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 what kind of uh resources did you find available in terms of either teachers or uh places to mm-hmm. go I mean, it's true that it's 
the, the tools are very different, but I would say the aim, uh, which is liberation from suffering, which is an opening to um, higher level of consciousness or so different level of consciousness, um, are the same. You know, there's, there's this, still this aim of liberation of the human condition in some ways. So, and I could see that already at the time. I remember that I was like, oh, all those are saying the same thing. They're just using different words and different tools. Mm-hmm. Um, so a friend of mine at the time, I had experience with plant medicine and mentioned it to me. I really never heard about it before. And he said, oh, there is that person that's coming and that does this work. Would you like to meet him? And I, you know, I went on this ceremony and, you know, I was so moved by it. It was so, it was difficult. It was very intense, but it was also so beautiful. And I felt, you know, for a moment, there was a moment in it, like sometimes you have that experience in meditation or other spiritual work, but almost touching at a, a glimpse of the universe, a glimpse of that totality, that love that's behind everything. And that was such a profound experience that it was it became kind of my rope to mm. the dark nights, to the suffering, you know, to the unknowing, like you mentioned, you know, and and going through it, say, well, um, I might not um, understand things very quickly, I might not find my path very quickly, but there's so much to discover there. There's something really beautiful. I could feel that. And I want to pursue that. Something was telling me, just go for it. Just trust it. Well, it's it's interesting. You just mentioned, you know, compared this to uh, some. You said sometimes in meditation. So I'm wondering if at that time you already had had a, a fairly um, deep or sophisticated meditation practice when when you um, found yourself so touched personally in this other. Yes, tradition. I did. My my, uh, I was already probably four three or four years already as a, as a, you know, deep between meditation, I was starting to teach meditation in New York. Uh, hmm. Which, and, uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, a Tibetan form or uh, uh, um, Hindu? Hindu tradition, okay. more the Hindu, yeah, Hindu tradition. And uh, I already had experience of, to the experience of kind of dissolved, this being completely dissolved, you know, that experience of expansion, that experience of love mm-hmm. in some of my meditation practice. And I knew, you know, I didn't have to hold to that. It was not, it was not that I was aiming for that, mm-hmm. but coming back from it and seeing how I was the days after, the weeks after I was experiencing and see how my language was changing, how my behavior watching my relation with my emotion was changing. I was like, wow, I'm, I feel so much better than the other way of being. And mm. so that, that I knew there was something else. You know, I could not tell what it was, and I really didn't know. I mean, if you tell me that I would be doing what I'm doing today, if you told me that 10 years ago, I would have probably laughed. <laughs> it was crazy. So, but, you, uh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm intrigued by, 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 you say, your language changed. I mean, um, clearly you're not talking about French to English. <laughs> your English is really good. <laughs> Thank you. So, so um, I, um, uh, but can you expand on that um, uh, by telling us what, you know, how, how you experienced the way you spoke? I assume that's what you mean. Um, how that, yes. how that yeah. um, shifted for you? Well, I remember clearly there was a moment in my life where I could see that my, most of my words, 
my language was coming down from my head into my throat, and that's what I was talking. Mm, that's I what see. I was saying. I okay. See. And then one day something dropped, and like my face, you know, I thought my face and my belief was very in my head. It was probably in my heart too already, but it was very heady. Mm-hmm. But it dropped in my heart. It dropped down. You know, it dropped down into my chest. I remember like the physicality of it, the feeling mm. that some of my words, like if I could get focused, if I would just drop him and I would speak from that place, it would be a voice that comes more from my my abdomen, my heart, and the way up through my throat. Mm-hmm. There was this clear moment seeing the difference in terms of tone and the difference in terms of wisdom, I would say, you know, and uh validation needed like when I was talking as a you know as a CEO or as a business person there was always this need for validation. There was something about to prove someone about me being right and saying that or doing this. Mm-hmm. Then it was something that was much deeper about my own experience, what I felt. You know, it was more about emotion and feelings than thinking. Hmm. That that's that's very interesting. I, I have a sort of a side question related to that in that while you while you had this experience and you were still working in the corporate uh, world, did you find yourself experimenting with what happens in that environment if you actually allow the uh, uh, words to drop down or to come from uh, a deeper place within yourself? Yes, I think... Um there was two aspects to it. The first one is that it could clearly bring a deeper uh, connection with others, uh, a different level of listening uh, that could happen, uh, mm. listening to, to each other and being present, basically. Uh, but also, it was triggering for some time for other people, you know, because it's almost like people want to stay in that heady space and that, you know, that unhealthy ego space, I would say, in some ways. Where if you come with certain words, sometimes you have to be very careful not create allergies. You know, my teachers always say, no, don't use allergic words. Hmm. So I was starting to use some of that vocabulary, you know, some different definitions. Like, for example, my definition of happiness, you know, would have been very different 10 years ago than it is today. Uh, but if you talk to people sometimes that have not yet uh, along on that path, that have maybe not got through the transformation, people can hear really. You know, they don't really believe that it's not about money or about the corporate letters or it's not about, you know, you know, all those things, you know, how big is your title on your business card. And so uh, it was a process, I would say, to kind of build that vocabulary, which was basically building my inner container, you know, that was holding that vocabulary. And also, you know, the, the painful process of shading all my belief system and my ego and all the things that I was and that keep me safe, or I mm. felt was keeping me safe. And it, it felt very unsafe, you know, to come out of that. It felt very like life and death, like I was dying to a process, but who was going to be born? And also a lot of my networks, a lot of my uh, friends, I would say, or connection at the time were people in that world. And I knew and I saw that a lot of that might be lost in the process. I had to change, find a new tribe, you know. My tribe was going to shift. Some people might be there, but a lot of them are not going to be along the way. And it was painful sometimes, you mm-hmm. know, to those people I've known for a very long time. So at this point then, uh, uh, there came the decision to completely walk away from that world. So tell us a little bit about that and 
and about the world that you walked into. Yes, that was, and that was at the kind of a peak event of my career at the time. Um, I was nominated for uh, the Entrepreneur of the Year Award uh, for my company uh, that I, you know, uh, launched in New York uh, with um, Christoph, my my business partner at the time, and so we were nominated for that award, which it's a pretty big deal in the in the business world. And I was in Times Square, uh, this private event for uh, this award ceremony. And uh, there was, I don't know, a thousand people in the room and CEOs and big companies and entrepreneurs. And I, I had to go on stage, you know, to, to talk and to be present for the opening of the award. And, you know, we were nominated. So there was all four or five nominated people with me and that. And when I walk on stage at that moment, and I remember very clearly looking at the whole room and everybody with big eyes open wanted to be us, wanted to be me, wanted to be on stage, wanted to be that person next year. And it was at a time where I was in profound inner suffering. My relationship was not well at all. You know, I was uh, mitigating myself. You know, there was a lot of things going on in my life. I was not healthy at all. And I saw the lie. The lie that I was, the walking lie, the big smile, the nice tie, the nice suit. But the truth that I knew that I could not hide anymore about not believing in, in what I was going to talk about. And basically something just shattered. I, something shattered. Something happened that day. And I remember leaving that evening and spending the almost the whole night up thinking, I can't do this anymore. And very quickly, a few weeks later, decided that I had to leave all of that. I could not wait anymore to find out because I was trying to find out what is it, you know, what am I supposed to do? It's one thing to love nature, to love, you know, shamanic world, to love spirituality and religion, but what do I want to do? You know, what, what do I do with that? How do I sustain myself? I had all those questions, you know, and it was a leap of faith. I, it was big enough inside of me that belief about that presence, but, you know, something bigger than me that I knew I could, I will be held. Something was going to carry me through that process. And that teacher that was going to carry me was inside myself, was, you know, beyond myself. It was something much bigger. And that was going to be something beautiful. But it went, it went to, you know, a lot of fainting and fears. And it was not like just, okay, let's go, you know, let's take a leap of faith. But, it was daunting, anyway. So um, you're at this uh, point of transition, and what it, what do you actually do in the world? Where do you take your body? Where do you where do you move? What what happens next? So I decide to uh, basically quit everything. Uh, my company. Uh, it was a process because, you know, I was running a big company and there was a lot of money behind. So it took, you know, many months to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also my relationship, my apartment in New York, everything I had basically in my life, my car, just everything, just let go of everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember uh, packing a big backpack, putting all what I was bringing with me <laughs> put on my bed, basically. There was like 40 or 50 things that I was going to bring with me. Uh, that I thought I would need on that journey. Uh, I remember taking a photo of it at the time and left with that backpack basically and took a one-way ticket to India 
but not to go to an ashram or to go yeah to see a teacher, but to go to volunteer at Mother Teresa in Kolkata. Hmm. Uh, and it was based on one of the teachers I was working with at a time where I was asking him, I said, you know, I really need a change. I want to go pray somewhere or meditate. And I want to go in an ashram for that. And he said, don't go in an ashram and, and uh, go taking care of the poor, the poorest of the poor, go serve, go do something that's not about you. And then you'll find yourself in that process. And he really struck me when he said that. Oh yeah, it does not to be about me. And so I, yeah, I thought about Mother Teresa somehow. And one of my friends walked there many years before, took a one-way ticket, get in Kolkata at um, the center, one of the center there at Mother Teresa, and just knocked at the door and say, here I am. And they asked me how long I was here for. And I said, I don't know, maybe one day, maybe one year, maybe more. Uh, and started walking with dying people the day after in the street of Kolkata and in hospital. You're listening to The Sanctuary Podcast with Angel Deer. While you're listening, browse the website at www.thesanctuaryheal.com. How did that touch your heart? Well, that's completely shifted everything. Uh, because for once, I was not worried. Hmm. Uh, for once, I was not questioning anything. It was a very funny thing. I was so present. Uh, by taking care. So I was working with, um, in the first place, Mother Teresa opened when she started, uh, which, which is the place where basically you pick up people that are dying in the street or about to die and you bring them in and you wash them, and you give them food and you give them a nice bed so they can die with dignity and not mm-hmm. in the street. And I was taking care of those men. So because I was a man, so I was in the, the men's side of the, of the hospital and that's what I would do. I would start doing those things. Um, and uh, I was so touched by those men, by their presence. And I was almost like taking care of babies in some ways, you know, because those men didn't have anybody ever that took care of them. And I was the only reason they might stay alive, by feeding them, by taking care of them. You know, I didn't speak their language, but I have to be there for them. Hmm. So, um, I can understand how that would be, um, uh, uh, that would rip open some things that wouldn't ordinarily get touched. Um, what happened after that? Well, as I was there, um, and it's funny because, you know, I was in a, was in a Hindu country. I was in India and I was surrounded by, you know, Hindu and Buddhist mainly, but I was in a, Christian place, you know, Mother Teresa. And one day, uh, so every morning and every evening before work and after work, I would go to the mass with all the sisters that run the centers. Mm -hmm. And I would be, it would be kind of my uh, anchor for the day. You know, it would give me strength for the day, just sitting there and listening to the sister on their knees, praying and singing for an hour. And I would go, you know, I would make the effort to just go there and spend an hour in my meditation and listening to the chants and all of that. And during that time, I think it was not a long time I was there. It was probably a week or two after I arrived. I had one of my first really profound, I would say, mystical experience of direct communication with God. That's, that's the best way I can describe it. I never really talked too much about it. I, you know, it was kind of a very personal experience, but let's say I had this conversation. 
that went on for a few days. Uh, almost, you could say, like a voice in your head, but a very clear conversation. And it was with Christ that was on that cross on the wall, mm-hmm. which was very weird to me because I didn't have any connection to it. I didn't have special connection to it uh, because I was not raised that way. But there was that discussion going on. And I was basically told, this is what you need to do. You need to... I was asking me, the first thing that was asking me was to resolve all the unresolved relationship pain that I was carrying with me. And so one of the first messages was, you need to reach out to that person that you hurt. And it was a person I haven't hurt for 10 years. I haven't been in touch for 10 years. It was, you know, much earlier in my life that this happened. And I remember coming out of that mass, being very shaken by it, but at the same time, not shaken, like like almost it was normal. You know, it was this very weird feeling. And opening my phone and having a message from my person, that person on my phone that I haven't heard from in years. And then I turn around and I looked at, you know, that man on that cross there, and I was like, what is going on? <laughs> and I thought I was really going crazy. And uh, he just laughed. It's just, that was, I mean, that's what I saw or felt or heard. He was just laughing. Um, and that was the beginning, basically, of things happening really deeply to me and starting touching me in depth. And then those voice went off a few days later, four or five days later. But a lot happened in that process. And that's when my faith dropped down. I was feeling it alive in my heart. Like I knew there was something beyond what I could see. There was a, a higher consciousness, something bigger um, that I could hold on to. And that could be my teacher. That could be my guide. And he related to me a lot to my plant medicine experience where I could feel and hear that voice in nature, you know, through trees or plants or rivers or mountains. And so it was this familiar voice, uh, very ancient, very wise, almost like a grandmother or grandfather. Uh, but that wisdom that I didn't remember or didn't know. And I was so clear. It was so precise. I could not not listen, basically. So I started listening. And where did that uh, listening take you next? Did you stay in uh, Kolkata, or did you ultimately uh, journey elsewhere? Yeah, so I spent a few months in Kolkata, and then I, I spent a whole year abroad uh, in total. But in Kolkata, I spent only a few months, and then I started to do other volunteering missions, different parts of India, and also Sri Lanka, Nepal, uh, and the Philippines, and a few other countries. Uh, I ended up in Israel at the, at the end. That's where I finished my trip. Uh, so, And I was mixing two weeks to a month of volunteering with two weeks or three weeks of meditation, prayer, teaching practice with different sage masters, teachers, or around. So I went, you know, to, to Bodh Gaya and Varanasi in India. So some of, you know, the most sacred place in India. And I, was, I did the same thing in Nepal and Sri Lanka, but always with keeping, making sure that I balance my time at least half of it for volunteering, mm-hmm. for being engaged, you know, in service. Uh, and I think that's what shifted the most my my whole work, obviously, because there was this spiritual experience going on in the background. There was this trying to hear that voice or to connect with that voice, to humble myself in some way so I could get out of the way 
uh, and connect to that deeper wisdom inside of me and also making sure I don't stay in my head and I don't just sit there in meditation for a year, but I serve and I help. And that kind of burst very different person because that was not much in who I was before. And, and so out of that uh, experience being on the road, um, at what point did you return to the U.S. and begin to offer more of this teaching and offer a practice to other people? Well, when I came back, first there was a question, do I come back? Do I come back to the U.S.? Do I stay here? Do I go somewhere else? Do I go back to France? You know, I was in the U.S. for 10 years at the time, uh, at that time already. Uh, and and uh, I started, you know, really praying and meditating about it and really it was, what I was feeling is like, yeah, that's where you need it. That's that's where you can serve. You know, that's that that's where you have connection and you know people. And, and so I decided to come back, but I still didn't know at all that I was going to do what I'm doing today. And so I started diving deeper in the plant medicine work, in the shamanic work, in Reiki and a few other practice, starting offering sound healing that I learned when I was in India. Um, Reiki, because I trained as a Reiki master when I was in India too during that year. So I started offering uh, some of those sessions when I was back and diving deeper in the plant medicine world, uh, going to Peru, you know, once or twice a year, uh, going to Brazil. And that's what basically really opened the most. That's what started to really open and shifted my path in, in profound ways, you know, in the last six, seven years. So, so well, I appreciate that. It's a interesting journey, and I, I would like to start to maybe talk a little more specifically about some of the the practices that you've you've described. In particular, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in, in 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 what you describe about healing and the uh, uh, utilization of healing, that putting yourself in that position engaged with other people instead of, uh, you know, completely engaged in some sort of interior practice you felt was a critical and as, if not, you know, as important, if not more important than the interior practices that you had been uh, introduced to. And so, I mean, well, mm, yeah, good. It, it, it's a very good question, and, and I, oh, it's always kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's very dualistic. We, it's two type of answer, really. You know, obviously it's needed. We, we need that inner work, and there's no way we can do soul work, going deep down, see what's going on without spending some time alone and some time in deep practices. But at the same time, I think especially for the Western mind and the way we have been educated uh, and all the shadows or layers or armors and traumas that's in the way, we can become self-centered a little bit mm-hmm. in this or lost in it. You know, it self-centered, you know, w- would be, you know, sometimes a little bit bad when we hear that, but just lost in it, that we just spend so much time doing that, that we really forgot why we're here, which is really not, it's not about us really. <laughs> it's really about others. It's really about service. You know, others being, it could be the planet and nature. It can be also people or animals. So, I mean, whatever calls you. Um, and sometimes, you know, you can get very attached to a practice and very tight to that practice. 
plus the practice, it already is only good for what you're going to do with it in real life with it. You know, true yoga is already the yoga of life. Once you're in a relationship with someone, meditation is how you're going to react if you're triggered by someone that's telling you something that's triggering you. That's when your practice is useful. It, it, it's easy to not be triggered, you know, if you spend a year in meditation in ashram. I mean, it's easier, let's say. Uh, it's a bit different once you have to be confronted with a partner that's difficult or your own parents, you know, whatever is going on in your life. That's really where you see how strong is your practice. And that's when you practice. You know, that's when you can practice your breathing, you know, your center, your being, still staying connected, you know, staying in your heart and, and still being engaged with people, you know, not pushing away, not running away and all of that. And so to me, I think that was key because that allowed me by kind of alternating these two different things to build a strong practice, but also to see its impact on my capacity to hold space, to hold people in their own trauma because I hold myself in my trauma, in my pain, you know, in my despair, in my hopelessness, you know, and, uh, uh, Shogram Chungpa talks a lot about that and, uh, and it was really triggering to me to to read that things were hopeless, you know, when I was really teaching at some point. But I kind of understood that later on, understanding that, yeah, we, we have this amazing capacity as human to hold opposite, to hold things sometimes we cannot reconcile, to hold sometimes deep, deep pain and grief, and also joy and gratitude to be alive when we wake up in the morning. And my life was always about extreme, one way or another. You know, fully on one side or fully on the other, on the other side. And that practice and really it's what nature is showing us in shamanic work is that capacity to hold opposite. It's life and death in front of your eyes when you look carefully at nature at all times. It's joy and pain. You know, it's all of that is there. And that for me is being human. It's being able to be in that center by feeling not by disengaging, not by bypassing. That's also the risk sometimes with deep practice. We can even bypass certain feelings, just being, you know, kind of checking out in meditation. Right. Uh, we just don't want the pain, you know, and we just meditate. So we come back from a hard at work. We just want not to feel. And, you know, some people take a glass of wine and some people meditate. Uh, you know, if you do it to numb the pain or bypass the pain, I don't know which one is better. I mean, probably meditation is better. You know, but at the end of the day, which one really, when are you going to do the deep healing work, which is to feel, to be able to hold that thing, to feel it, to be present with it. And, and that takes time, to be honest, you know, it takes, it takes a lot of time to be able to do that. And falling again, you know, and I'm still on that path, you know, still falling and, and climbing again, you know, every time I fall. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Um, so um, this is this. Uh, your what you were just saying uh, reminds me of something I heard you. I, th- I thought I heard you say earlier um, in the show, which was sort of linking healing and liberation. That is the kind of liberation that, like uh, Buddhism, uh, might speak of. Um, and and so. Um, you just you just I think introduced trauma for the first time the the word trauma mm-hmm. into the conversation a few minutes ago and yes. and I know um, from some of the emails we shared before this interview that that's a that that's a big area for you but but if um, you're gonna if one speaks about trauma um, the healing is is obviously related to that but but before we get into the trauma 
specifically, I'm wondering if there's is there any other way that you would link these two, because I think this is this is an interesting area now. You know, in California, we see lots of teachers who who are speaking about healing and the importance of healing, uh, individual healing, collective healing, uh, yeah. planetary healing, etc. And um, and they don't necessarily link that to um, the sort of some of the some of the classic um, descriptions of liberation from 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 you know Buddhists and other and other uh, uh, traditions. So I'm wondering if you could just talk about that linkage. Yes, I mean I'm not I'm not a Buddhist practitioner, so I cannot talk much about that. But you know I study a little bit and. But to me, very often, at least, you know, in the spiritual community, when people sometimes, you know, is it maybe not so deep yet in the path or not really a lot yet, liberation is almost like, you know, this nirvana. So it's that place almost of no suffering. Mm-hmm. But it's seen as a place of no suffering because basically I'm just in pure bliss. You know, there's no more, there's no more pain. There's none of that anymore. And that's, yes, that's good. How does it say? space of liberation, I can just be present, you know, and be in that state. But for me, the truth as human beings, you know, however advanced we are with our practices and however type of practice we're doing, the path of liberation is a path of being able to feel everything and Mm -hmm. feel, be able to be emotionally engaged and connected with our heart which allows us to be emotionally engaged and connected with others. Which that, means that it doesn't mean, I, I don't use the, the word pain, or there's no more pain. No, it can be pain. You know, we can be very liberated and still experience a feeling of deep grief with something, but we're not taken by it. You know, we're not just the grief. We can have fear, but I'm not becoming fear. I can have pain, but I'm not the pain. So I can allow myself, and that's why it becomes tricky, because I need to allow myself to expand my heart enough so I can feel everything, so I don't bypass, I don't avoid mm-hmm. experience, because if I avoid the pain, I'm going to avoid also the, the high, you know, I'm going to be in that zone where I cannot really feel anymore, because my nervous system has been described now very well, physiology, my nervous system, when it's engaged, can feel everything, but it's not a different system for the joy and the grief, you know, it's a one system that keeps me engaged or not with others. And if I do in a practice, I'm able, I realize that's what happened over the years that I'm able to sit with, like we talked about earlier, unknowingness, even like not knowing what tomorrow might bring. I might be able to sit with hopelessness, which is, might seem very difficult to sit in peace with it. But which means that if I can really do that in my practice, I'm going to be able to hold that space with someone else, not through my words only, but through my presence, through an embodied nervous system and body that's basically resonating that vibration or that frequency or whatever we call it, a nervous system that is at peace, you know, that the less anxious person in the room should be you if you do a good practice. With always a less anxious, not, no anxiety, you know. That's the healer in the room. That's the person that can hold that space. And we hold at that capacity. You know, it's not something that 
you know, in a heater, I don't really like that term anyway, uh, that carries, but it's anyone that can hold that space for someone that has pain, that has trauma, that is going something difficult. It's not telling them, oh, reach out to bliss and you just love and you just slide, because that's not going to help anyone there. You know, it's say no, it's say, how can we be with that and still see that we are much more than that? Hmm. It'll see all of it. And how do we hold it together with others? How do we stay connected? You know, trauma is a very uh, system approach thing. You know, you cannot really resolve trauma as an individual if you don't approach the system you're in, either being your family or very often your family or your friends or people that you're very connected to. Because trauma moves around. That's the funny thing about trauma. But in shamanic work, in shamanic practices, that the way we it always look at trauma, you know, it's not seen as something you carry. It's mostly almost like uh, an entity or little person that can move around between different people. And the most sensitive person usually in the group is the one that is going to experience the most because they are the recipients of it. But if others are there and present and can hold that space for them, people can heal faster than doing it on their own. Which tribes have done for eons. Yeah. You know, if they live in close community in tribes, that's why they have way less trauma when they can keep their way of life because they have a way when someone is going through trauma or difficult experience to heal that. Very different than the way we're doing in the West. Very different that we approach it. Yeah, and there's a couple things just in in what you've been talking about for the last few minutes. I wanted to respond a little to in terms of our own background. And one is I really like the formulation that you put forward of the relationship between practice, as in like an interior practice, and the um, what it's for, and the analogy that you know, comes to mind for me is uh, like learning a musical instrument where you do periods of practice, but that's different from actually spontaneously playing and performing in a situation that involves other people. And and the way that you're describing that is is, uh, a good reminder that the aim of the practice is not just to become this dot somewhere, but to actually re-engage in life and be connected with people and to bring a certain kind of presence, as you described, you're able to hold a certain kind of space so that that can be a benefit and of a support for people as they continue to live their lives. So that's, that's yeah. definitely one thing we appreciate. The other, the other um, uh, element of that that uh, I also just wanted to speak to is like our, in our own tradition, which has bears some resemblance to the uh, fourth way work of Gurdjieff. Our own teacher, mm-hmm. our own teacher was very big on the uh, concern that, you know, interior practices imported from the West, from the East into a, a Western society do have the, have the risk of really uh, creating more isolation and more sort of uh, self-absorption. Mm-hmm. And, he de- he devised a number of practices uh, we call co-meditation in which you're really systematically putting attention on other people, mm-hmm. and, and that the aim of that was that for a Westerner, um, you know, the shock is to actually put full attention on another. You know, it's easy for us because we're so self-absorbed to put our attention on ourselves. But for uh, you know the the transformative moment is like when you truly put attention on someone else. 
and take that attention off of your self-concern like you were describing that 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 is uh, profoundly revelatory in a way that individual meditation uh not to diminish that but individual meditation may not be a complete picture so yeah i fully 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 resonate with what you just said love Gorchev, by the way i studied a little bit and really love uh his teachings uh but to me, it's because we've learned, you know, I've, I've wrote recently about it, but we we learn so much the way of ownership, which is a way of separation. You know, what I have, what you don't have. I have a diploma, I come from this family, I own this, it's one of my bank account, this is the cars I have, this is the brand, whatever. In traditional system, it's not about ownership, even the land, you don't own the land, you're in a relationship with it. It's all about relationship. And to me, it's how do we move the collective from a mindset, which is a mindset of ownership, to a mindset of relationship. Because either we want it or not, we are in relationship. We're in relationship with this earth, we're in relationship with each other, and we're only going to make it together or we're not going to make it. To me, it's plain simple. It's very obvious uh, when I look at the world and what's going on. So when we take this practice, very often it becomes ownership. Oh, I have this certificate. I went to this training. I've got this yoga certification. I've got this and that and this and that. The question is always to bring back, and that's probably one of the most important questions, is who is it for? When I'm doing a session or I'm doing a, a ceremony, I'm like, who is it for? You know, and if, if as therapists, if as people that help others and whatever however we define ourselves, we can always answer very clearly that question. Like we 100% we know, even if we give a massage, it's not for me. You know, and in the world of trauma, you know, I've trained in trauma a lot recently, and I've, I'm doing a lot of work with sexual trauma, which is a dedicate, um, you know, dedicate trauma. It's difficult because nervous system is very often shut down and that. You need always to make sure that whatever you do is the person desire, what people want. Mm-hmm. What people ask for, and you're not putting on them a treatment. You're not putting on them. It's something that's co-created, and I think that's what shifted a lot of the way. So I look at healing ten years ago, five years, six years ago, seven years ago, to the way I look at it now. What to me now, it's a co-creation. Yes, I have tools that I've learned. I can use singing bowls. I can use a drum. I can use my my voice. But at the end of the day, is you know, you are your own hitter talking to the person that's there. You have the power. I'm not here to fix you. And the only way for that person to feel that is if they are co-creating the healing experience with you. So they find their own power within themselves. Because if not, they become addicted to the healer, to the guru, to the teacher, to the workshop, to the retreat, to the plant medicine, you know, to whatever works for them. And then we're going just to have a great experience and we feel really good about it. And then we come back and we don't have that effect anymore because it was something that's coming from outside inside of us, not something that's revealed from inside of us. And there's beautiful retreats and people that work that way, you know, more and more. But I think it's very always important to say, okay, is it something I'm going, you know, for? Am I in relationship here? Who is it really for? You know, and am I empowering you? to find your own way through this darkness, through whatever you're going through? Or am I coming with solutions and telling you this is what you have to do? 
Because if I do that, I'm just doing the same thing school system and education in the Western world have done to people for now hundreds of years. Yeah, well, uh, we're at a point, a good point to uh, take a break for the show. So, so we'll get back to this, uh, this uh, discussion yeah. of, of shamanism and healing, the various healing techniques and the goals therein. So, um, but um, um, so we'll we do look a couple to more. Yeah, so we'll do a couple of announcements. I'm going to turn you over to uh, Rob on the phone. We'll be off. You'll be off the air, and uh, then we'll uh, rejoin in uh, probably about uh, six or seven minutes. Okay, great. Okay. See you soon. We'll return to our show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called The Lute in Dance and Dream, masterpieces for lute from the 16th to 18th centuries performed by Lutz Kirchhoff on Renaissance and Baroque lutes. This piece is a prelude and chaconne by Charles Mouton. You've been listening to The Sanctuary Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, we're a source of talks about spirituality, personal transformation, energy healing, shamanism, and earth-based practices. For more, visit thesanctuaryheal.com. On the website, you can find out about our events, our retreats, healing offering, our spiritual blog, and you can also register for the newsletter. Again, visit thesanctuaryheal.com. Till next time, this is the Sanctuary Podcast, and Angel Deer signing off. <laughs>